First, I want to wish a very, very happy birthday to someone who is extremely close to me, someone that I care about very much. A very happy birthday to Joseph Donath, Yosef Yitzchak Yehuda, Ben Sarah, Ben Hanasara. Joe's Hebrew birthday is the 29th of Av, which is the Shabbos. Happy birthday, Joseph Donath. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, August 5th, 2021. I am so grateful that you've joined us tonight, and I am so looking forward to being able to study together with you tonight. Thank you very much for being here. This coming Jewish year, starting on Rosh Hashanah, is a Shemitah year. Every seven years, the Shemitah year, a sabbatical year, and it is a year in which we are to remember the concepts based on the Pasuk in the Torah where God says, Ki li ha'aretz. God says, the land, the earth belongs to me. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God's. As the verse says in Tehillim, Lahashem ha'aretzim loa. God owns the world and its fullness. Everything in it belongs to God. And there are two aspects to our observance of the Shemitah year starting this Rosh Hashanah, extending until next year, Rosh Hashanah. The first is an agricultural element. In Israel, we are not allowed to plant anything during this year. We're not allowed to harvest as owners. Rather, whatever grows on its own is free and open for anyone to take. We're not allowed to act like owners of the land. Now, there are many, many details to this, many, many aspects, both to understand it philosophically as well as to understand it practically. How actually do farmers and to the rest of society survive in this year and the next year? And we're going to study that together at great length in the coming weeks and over the coming year. Then there is a second aspect, a second layer of Shemitah, and this is a global layer. It applies everywhere in the world, and this comes from our Parsha, the Parsha of Re'eh, and it is known as Hashmatas Ksafim, the canceling of debts. Torah says in our Parsha, Miket Shavashonim Tasa Shemitah. At the end of seven years, meaning every seven years, we observe the Shemitah, the sabbatical year. V'zed var hashmitah. And this is what it means to observe the Shemitah. Shemot kobal Moshe yado, asher yashe esreyehu. Everyone who has lent money to someone else, the debts are erased. Lo yigos esreyehu. Do not pressure your fellow to reclaim your debt, to have your debt repaid. Because it is a year of Shemitah, a sabbatical to God, and therefore the debt is canceled. Obviously, this aspect of Shemitah is meant to extend the concept of the sabbatical year to those who do not own land in Israel, to those who are not farmers, so that every Jew everywhere in the world can experience in some way 
the concepts and the experience of what the Shemitah is supposed to mean and supposed to do for us. Now, this cancellation of debts actually happens at the end of the Shemitah year. So it doesn't happen this Rosh Hashanah. It happens just before next Rosh Hashanah as the Shemitah year will come to an end. And there are a number of limitations to this cancellation. First of all, it only applies to loans between one Jew and another Jew. It only applies to a loan that is due during the Shemitah year before next Rosh Hashanah. So it doesn't apply, let's say, a loan that's only due in three years, for example. And it only applies to unsecured loans. So it would not apply to something like a mortgage or any which is secured, or it does not apply to any other financial obligation except for a loan. Now, we will study later. There is a method to be able to circumvent this law. There is a method to transfer the debt to Betin, to the Jewish court, and that is done through a document called Prusbal, and that is a document that we will execute and then discuss, not this year, but next year before next Rosh Hashanah. And this we will talk about also at length, both philosophically and practically, and we'll do that next year, a year from now. Let's leave that to the side for now because I want to dwell on an illuminating discussion in the Talmud. Remember, Shemitah cancels loans. I mentioned this, but the Talmud asks, what happens if the loan is not due during the Shemitah year? What happens if it's only due after the Shemitah year? Let's say I lend money to another Jewish person and the term of the loan is they're supposed to pay me back in three years. The Talmud says Shemitah does not cancel that debt. Which is a little hard to understand on the surface because if the idea is that Shemitah, the sabbatical year, the end of the sabbatical year cancels debts, what does it matter if it's a debt that's already due or a debt that's only going to be due later? Why doesn't it cancel all the debts? So the Talmud says that the mitzvah in our parsha that Shemitah cancels debts only applies if it is a debt that is due during the Shemitah year. That type of a debt, which is due when next Rosh Hashanah comes, it's canceled. Because, explains the Talmud, the Torah said, which I quoted before, Lo yigos es reyehu. During the Shemitah year, we are not supposed to go to someone who has borrowed money from us and pressure them to pay it back. Demand that they pay it back. That would only apply if it's due. If the loan's not due, there would be no reason for me to go to the borrower to bother him about paying it back because it's not due. But if it's due during the Shemitah year, then 
I might go over to that person and say, when are you going to pay me? Do you have the money? I want to be paid back. And that's what we're not allowed to do because what is wrong, what the Torah does not want us to do during the Shemitah is not so much collecting the money, it's the demanding the money. It's acting like a lender who is entitled to repayment. The Torah does not want us during the Shemitah year to pressure someone else to repay us. It's that behavior that the Torah wants to prohibit. And the reason for that is, all too often, we fall into the trap that many especially people in power, fall into. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter put it as follows. Having money is not bad. Loving money is bad. But the problem is, all too often we get caught up in the status of money, in the meaning of having lots of material possessions. The moral superiority which so often we feel if we are wealthy. For an entire year, during the Shemitah year, we are not allowed to feel superior to someone else because we have more money than they do and they had to borrow from us. So for a loan that is due, we're not allowed to demand repayment and it's canceled at the end of the Shemitah. But if it's not due and I don't have any reason to have contact with the borrower during the Shemitah year, I haven't done the behavior of acting superior, claiming the money back, that there's no problem and that debt is not canceled. In other words, the Shemitah is intended to remind us both in its agricultural aspect and in its lending aspect that we are only stewards of our possessions. Just because you lent money to someone else does not necessarily entitle you to get it back. Rabbi Beryl Wine is an amazing, amazing rabbi in person, scholar. And years ago, he now lives in Israel. And years ago, he was a rabbi for many years in Miami, Florida. And it was the case that during Rabbi Wine's years, there were certain rabbis that would come to Miami in order to collect funds for their institutions in Israel, which is very common all over the world. But the story that Rabbi Wein tells is of a very different caliber than we may be used to in our own lives. Because Rabbi Wein received an annual visit from Rabbi Kahaneman. Rabbi Kahaneman from B'day Brak in Israel, of blessed memory, was an incredible man. He was an amazing scholar. He was a tremendously brilliant person with an insight into character. He also had a warmth about him, 
a personality that just people would gravitate to, an incredible, incredible figure. And so when he came to Miami to collect funds for his yeshiva, the great yeshiva in Bnei Brak, in Israel, it was not only about collecting money, it was an experience of being able to spend time and to learn from this great man. So Rabbi Wine tells the following story that occurred one time when Rabbi Kahaneman came to visit. There was a certain man, a very, very wealthy man who had an office in downtown Miami and Rabbi Wine arranged an appointment for Rabbi Kahaneman to go visit this man to ask him for a generous donation to his yeshiva. Rabbi Wine drove Rabbi Kahaneman to this appointment and the man had made the appointment and then canceled it and made it and canceled it. He's a very, very busy man. And the man had said, listen, I'm going to give you 10 minutes. You have 10 minutes and then I'm too busy to spend any more time. They're driving to the appointment and there was heavy traffic. And the appointment was for three o'clock and it was very close to three o'clock and they get near the office building and now they're driving around looking for a parking space. They're looking for a parking space and they're going to be late because they can't find a parking space and they only have 10 minutes. At 3.10, he's out the door. The opportunity is lost. There's a parking lot and the parking lot's full. You drive around and there's no space. They're driving and they see there's one empty space. And Rabbi Kahaneman says to Rabbi Wine, pull in in that spot. The space has a sign that says reserved for the president of the company, who's the man that they're going to see. Rabbi Wine says, we can't park there. It's, it's, it's this man's parking space. <laughs> in Miami, people are very serious, like in other places, about their parking space. If it's his parking space and you, and you, park in his spot, he's going to get very upset with you. Forget that he's not going to give you a donation. He's going to get angry with you. Rabbi Kahneman says, don't worry about it. Pull into the space. Okay. Rabbi Kahneman says to pull in the space. He pulls into the space. They pull in. They rush out of the car. They rush into the building. They take the elevator up to the president's office. They come into the office. The they say to the secretary who they are and why they're there. They have an appointment at three o'clock. They're just on time and they are ushered into this gigantic office. And this very, very wealthy Jewish businessman is sitting in his seat behind his desk. He says to them, welcome rabbis, happy to have you. But again, I have to tell you, I only have 10 minutes. So, Rabbi Wine introduces Rabbi Kahaneman and Rabbi Kahaneman starts speaking. Of course, he's done this a million times. He has it down pat. He knows exactly what to say. He's going through his spiel and in the middle, the secretary comes into the office and the secretary says, these men parked in your parking space. Rabbi Wine at that moment wanted to sink into the floor because he realized that the whole thing was just now lost.
the whole opportunity is lost. This is, is the worst thing you could do to somebody, to park in this parking space. Rabbi Kahaneman says, Sir, let me explain. We stopped and we called 15 minutes before the appointment and your secretary told us that you were here, that you were in your office. We arrived and there was no car in your spot and we needed a place to park. So we parked in your spot. We knew that you didn't need it because you're already here and it's empty. So the assistant says, but the sign says reserved. How could you park in his spot? It says reserved. So Rabbi Kahaneman says, despite what the sign may say, it was our spot for the taking. Because in this world, God gives us many things, but he never gives them to us for our own possession, for our keeping. A house is bought, a house is sold. Money is transferred. What we have is ours only for a time. It's in our hands and eventually it will go somewhere else. Reserved does not exist. If you're not using it properly, then God may just give it to someone else who will use it in the correct fashion. The assistant was not impressed, but the president started smiling because he understood that Rabbi Kahaneman was not talking about parking spaces. He was talking about an approach to life. And he recognized that he was being given the opportunity to do with some of his funds what God wanted him to do with it. And Rabbi Kahaneman left with a very generous donation. Shemitah is our opportunity to internalize this idea. And what we need to try to do during the entire year in many different ways is to try to understand this concept and make it a part of ourselves, not just during the Shemitah, but going forward. Now, let me share this with you from a very different point of view. You know, people often make fun of economists, but I don't understand why. After all, Economists have correctly predicted 10 of the last five recessions. It's not my own line, but it's a good line. But I would like to discuss with you economic theory because economics is at the heart of this week's Torah portion, Re'eh. And it is also at the heart of religion, though perhaps not how you might imagine. Several times in the Torah, God prohibits us from charging interest on any loan 
between one Jew and another Jew. Now, that's a strange prohibition because there is no logical difference between charging for the use of my ox or my home or my car. How is that any different than charging for the use of my money? Why can't I charge for the use of my money if I'm allowed to charge for the use of my tool, my house, my apartment, anything else that I lend out, that I lease, that I lease out? That's one question. But then God commands us further, as we just discussed, this second component to the laws of Shemitah that in the Shemitah year, in the sabbatical year, any loan between one Jew and another that is outstanding, it's due, but it's not yet repaid by the end of the Shemitah year next Rosh Hashanah, the debt is canceled. Let me ask you a question. What kind of economic sense does that make? How can a Jewish business survive if they're required, number one, to make loans to other Jews and not receive interest, and then every seven years to give up collecting altogether. Now, I did mention this briefly, that there is a workaround promoted by Hillel about 2,000 years ago in the Talmud. It's called a prisbol. We're going to discuss that at great length later, but that's a later rabbinic initiative. Let's just focus now on, not on Hillel, but let's talk about God. What does God have in mind with these two laws? How do they make sense from an economic point of view? The Talmud explains, some people have more and some people have less because God wants us to constantly be involved in helping others. Helping others is, in fact, the foundation of the world. The verse in Tehillim, in Psalms, Kiomarti, God said, Olam chesed yibana. The world was created based on kindness, based on helping others. God wants us to be the kind of person who work to correct the imbalance in the world who work to correct the economic differential between people in the world. That's our job. About a thousand years ago, the Ramba, Maimonides taught that the greatest help for someone who is in need is not a handout. Handouts are necessary. But the greatest way to help someone else is through an interest-free loan to help them start their own business, to be able to support themselves. Even if sometimes you may not be able or even allowed to collect your debt. But here's the critical point. So this is Jewish ethics. This is having faith in God. Don't charge interest. Let your debts be canceled. That's a religious, spiritual, ethical ideal. Yes, that's true. But it's not just that. 
it's also very sound economic policy. Because charity for those in need is terribly inefficient from an economic point of view. Now, don't get me wrong, it's still very important and we still and it's still necessary and we still have to do it, but it's terribly inefficient because it is much more efficient for society to prevent poverty by providing jobs for people so that they can support themselves and in doing so be able to spend that money supporting others that it takes far less money than to give handouts to people who are hungry. And that's not just sound economic theory. It is what the Torah itself says will be the result of lending without interest and canceling debts at the end of the Shemitah year. Because in our parsha, the Torah says, if we are careful about that, we will reach a place where there is no more poverty if we would just do that correctly. And Dr. Mayor Tamari, one of the foremost economists who specialize in Jewish teaching about economics, points out a remarkable example of this. One of the great economic phenomenon of modern Jewish history is the rebuilding of Jewish wealth in North America after the immigration from European countries and Sephardic countries in the previous century. It's amazing if you think about it. The generation of Jews who immigrated to the New World, most of them arriving impoverished. Perhaps some of your parents or your grandparents were in this situation and an abnormally large number of them went on to become very, very successful financially. Unlike many other groups who immigrated in large numbers. And Tamari, speaking as an economist, points out that one of the reasons for that, there are probably several, but one of the reasons for that is the widespread practice in Jewish communities of free loan societies, of interest-free loans. Which, by the way, is still practiced in Jewish communities all over the world, including in Montreal. And here's the point. Economically, it works. It helps people establish themselves, build or rebuild wealth, and be able to contribute to the economics of the society. It works. But what it does require is for each individual to think not just about what is best for me in the short term. Of course, what's best for me in the short term is to be able to collect my debts even after the Shemitah year, is to be able to charge interest when I 
lend my capital to someone else. That's my best interest in the short term. But in the long term, what's best for me and what is also best for the entire society is to lend money without interest and every seventh year to allow the debt to be erased. That leads to preventing poverty. It leads to people being able to help and support themselves. A great Hasidic rabbi once told his followers, his Hasidim, everything in God's creation has a purpose. So one of his students asked him, if that's the true, if that's correct, Rebbe, what's the purpose of apicursus, of heresy? What positive purpose could there be in denying the existence of God? And the Rebbe said, when you confront another person who is in need, you should imagine that there is no other God, that there is no God to help, but that you alone can meet this person's needs. Sometimes the way to serve God is to imagine that there is no God. There is no one else to help but me. And that is what Shemitah can accomplish. It's a tremendous exercise in faith. Yes, trust in God. Yes, alongside a tremendous rebalancing of economic equality within society, of closing the gap between wealthy and poor, of evening out self-esteem within all sectors of society and giving us an avenue for people in need to escape the cycle of poverty. Now this is during Shemitah, a result of Shemitah that happens every seven years. But there is also a desire to inculcate at least some of that every year, all the time. And it's actually reflected in the next passage in this week's Parsha. Because the next passage after the laws of Shemitah, the Torah says in our Parsha, Ki evyon, when there shall be a person in need, do not harden your heart. You should open your hand. The word is repeated. You shall surely open your hand. You shall open your hand widely and generously. The Talmud explains, You should provide all that the person needs. And our rabbis explain that means not only to provide what they're lacking financially, but also, and maybe even more important, a person's need for dignity and for self-respect. And that's the reason for the emphasis within Jewish values in giving tzedakah anonymously. We have the famous story in the Torah of Mar'ukva, Mar'ukva, one of the great sages in the Talmud. There was a very poor man who lived in his neighborhood. 
and Mar Ukva every Thursday night when it was dark late at night and no one else was out in the street. He would quietly take a container of food and leave it on the person's doorstep and run away so that no one would know, even the recipient, no one would know who had given it to him. This poor man every Friday morning wakes up and he sees this food and he's curious, who is it who's helping me every Shabbos? Who is it who is providing for me? Without this, I wouldn't have food to eat. So this man decided, I'm going to find out. And so one week, he made sure that he stayed up late. And as soon as he heard outside his door footsteps, he ran and opened the door to see who his benefactor was. But Marukva did not want to be found out. So Marukva ran away. And this man is running after him. They're running through the streets of their town in the middle of the night. And Marukva is running very, very fast because he must hide. He will not reveal himself. But the man is catching up and so Marukva has to hide somewhere. And so he just turns into an open doorway and it happens it's the open doorway to a bakery, a bakery that has a gigantic oven, which of course was in use getting ready for Shabbos. And Marukva runs into the oven to hide. The man, of course, doesn't think to look in an oven. It's impossible for a person to survive being in a hot oven. And the man is not able to find his benefactor. Marukva came out and he was unharmed. He came home and his wife asked him what happened and he told her the story. And his wife said to him, but how could you have done that? And Marukva said to his wife, Our rabbis teach us that one should rather throw themselves into a fiery furnace rather than to cause shame or embarrassment to their neighbor. And because of that great deed, a miracle was performed. And he survived and he maintained his anonymity. This act of Tzedakah, we often translate it as charity. But the word tzedakah means something very different. Charity is something that's voluntary. It's a handout. Tzedakah means, from the word tzedek, what is just. Earlier this week, I gave one explanation of this term, but I want to give another one tonight. We call this act tzedakah because this is what is necessary in order to create a just society, a society of tzedek, of justice. And this distinction between charity and tzedakah helps to explain a curious law. The Rambam Maimonides says when he codifies the laws of tzedakah, he says as follows, Afilu oni hamisparnes minatstaka, even a poor, a poor person who is required to receive funds from tzedakah because they don't have the money to feed themselves, chayev litain tzedakah That person is also obligated to give tzedakah to someone else. It's very strange. 
Why should I give tzedakah to another person so that they're going to be able to give tzedakah to a third person? <laughs> Let me give you the tzedakah that you need. Somebody else will take care of that third person. If you yourself are receiving, you need to receive. How is it right for you to take some of those funds and give it away to somebody else? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs explains, because giving to someone else is essential to human dignity. And tzedakah is not just giving money. Tzedakah is the obligation to ensure that everyone has that level of dignity that they can help someone else. To be able to help someone else gives the giver a sense of dignity and importance and significance. And everyone is entitled to that, even if they have to do so from funds they receive from tzedakah. I have to give someone who is in need food to eat when they need it. And I also have to give them the wherewithal to be able to give to others for their dignity. That's also part of tzedakah. The highest level of tzedakah, as I implied earlier, is to help a person get a job. Even if it means that you did not actually give them any funds, even if it means you just put in a good word for them, that's still, that's not charity because you didn't give them any, a handout, but that's tzedakah. You gave a person dignity. You gave a person a sense of self-worth that they can now support themselves. That's tzedakah. That's the difference between tzedakah and charity. Tzedakah does not depend on how much you give. It depends on being the kind of person that you are supposed to be. There was once the owner of an art gallery and he bought a little known Picasso painting and he was very, very proud of this purchase. It wasn't one of the significant Picassos, but it was a Picasso. It happened that Picasso himself came in to visit the gallery. Picasso saw the painting and he said to the man, the owner of the gallery, it's a fake. The owner was distraught because even though it was a minor painting, he paid a lot of money. He was hoping to make a big profit and now it's a fake. It's worthless. Then he pointed to another Picasso painting that this gallery owner had. And Picasso said, that one's also a fake. And another one, he said, that's also a fake. Finally, the, bu the buyer said, the, the owner of the gallery said, you mean to tell me all these paintings, these Picasso paintings, you mean to tell me you did not paint them, Pablo Picasso? And Picasso said, of course I painted them. I paint fake Picassos just like others paint fake Picassos. Sometimes we go through life living as our fake selves. 
lacking sincerity, lacking authenticity, lacking genuineness. Tzedakah helps others. But tzedakah also helps me focus on what and who I am supposed to be. Let me share one last piece tonight. What I'd like to share with you now is partially based on a lecture I heard from Shira Smiles, who is an incredible, engaging teacher of Torah. If you ever have the opportunity to listen to Shira Smiles teach, I urge you to take the opportunity. There is a prayer. It's Tehillim Psalm 24. We say this psalm as the Shir Shalyom, the psalm of the day every Sunday, all year long. But it is a prayer that is central to the Yamim Naroyim, the high holidays. On Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we say this prayer every night and also every day during the Musaf prayer. Psalm 24. Su'u u we say, open the eternal gates. That's an instruction to every one of us to open the gates. And then, the Yavo Melech HaKavod, so that the King of Glory will enter. On Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we want this encounter with God at this holiest moment. But in order to have that encounter, we have to initiate it. It requires our effort to prepare for it, to be ready for it. The instrument of that preparation for the intimate encounter with God on Rosh Hashanah, the vehicle that opens those gates for our encounter with God is the shofar. Now, blowing the shofar, hearing the sounds of the shofar, fills two distinct roles. On Rosh Hashanah, there is a mitzvah to hear specific sounds of the shofar. And those sounds are meant to be the coronet that announces the approach of the sovereign, of the king, of God. We blow the shofar to initiate that encounter, the Yavo Melech HaKavod, so that we shall be in this intimate encounter with God. It initiates God's judgment because God comes as a sovereign, as a king who holds us responsible. The Yavo Melech HaKavod, God comes to us on Rosh Hashanah, Badin, in judgment. Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. That's one role of the shofar. Then there's a second role of the shofar. And it starts on the first day of the month of Elul, which is this coming Monday, 
which is the month before Rosh Hashanah, which is the month to prepare for Rosh Hashanah. And the practice that we have, starting on Monday, every weekday morning, at the end of morning services, Shachris, is to blow the shofar. That act of blowing the shofar in the month, during the month before Rosh Hashanah has a very different function than blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And that function can be understood based on a verse from the prophet Amos, Amos. The prophet says, Arye shoeg mi lo yira. When the lion roars, is there anyone who is not afraid? Is there anyone who is not shaken? That's the verse. The word arye in Hebrew is spelled aleph, resh, yud, hey. One of the classic commentators, the Shalah, says that that is an acronym. The word arye, aleph, resh, yud, hey, is an acronym for the following words. Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Hoshana Rabbah. In other words, the roar of the shofar during the month of Elul is to awaken us to the power of these days, the spiritual potential of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day of Sukkos, if we prepare for it. The roar of the shofar in the month of Elul should awaken us to spend this month preparing to prepare ourselves to open those gates in order for on Rosh Hashanah the Yavel Melech HaKavod for the God of glory, the King of glory to enter. The roar of the shofar during Elul should prompt us to start asking ourselves some very serious, important questions. What do we want to pray for this Rosh Hashanah, this Yom Kippur? What do we want to get out of these upcoming holidays? How do we want to be different? How do we want to be better by the time Simchas Torah, the end of the high holiday period, arrives? Rabbi Shlomo Karbach points out the first word of the Torah, Bereshis. We normally translate in the beginning, Bereshis Baralakim, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. Shlomo Kabach explains it a little bit differently, not literally, but metaphorically, symbolically. Bez, Bereshis. Bez, Reshis. Bez means two, bet, bez, two, two or more. Reshis, beginnings. In order to start the Torah, you must know, you must believe that you are capable of two or even more 
beginnings. The essence of the high holidays is that you can always begin again. Because without that, there is no Torah. Without a way to renew ourselves, without a way to come to a rebirth, without a way to cleanse ourselves and start a new path, there is no authentic Jewish life. This is the most fundamental truth of the High Holidays. We can ask ourselves those questions. Who do I want to be by the end of these holidays? And we can come up with answers. If we think about it during this month of Elul, starting on Monday, when we hear the shofar. And we can implement those answers. And if we do, I promise we will not be bored in the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah during services. Because we will then be able to experience the Yavo Melech HaKavod. We will have prepared ourselves for the most intimate, transcendent encounter with God. I ask you and I ask myself to consider this as we hear the shofar during the month of Elul starting this Monday morning. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening and a wonderful Shabbos and a deep and meaningful beginning of the month of Elul on Monday as we prepare for the highlight of this year, the Yamim Noroim, the Days of Awe. Thank you so much for joining. I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.